Hi, it's Samantha Fletcher. Check me out on Dave's Head Podcast. We're going to be talking about school, going back to school in this pandemic, diversity, equity, race, all sorts of things that you need to know. Check me out. What's up? Good morning, afternoon, or evening, good people, wherever you are and however we're together. Thank you for being here. I'm Dave, and this is Dave's Head. So what's in my head? First thing that's in my head is contingency plans. And so as a Capricorn, I think, I overthink, I overthink some more, and I do that a lot. I actually had a conversation a short time ago where the topic of having a backup plan came up and I always personally have a backup plan whether it's you know for a person for a thing for a big change for financials for whatever I always have a backup plan why because people and things are inconsistent and so and also because stuff just happens right so it's important to me to have a contingency plan because in the event that the path I want to walk has some potholes, the road's out of service, it doesn't exist anymore on that path, I need to be able to shift and, and adjust my focus and my direction. And so the only way you can do that on the fly, because life comes at you fast, is to have a contingency plan. And so there was something that, that occurred where the path I wanted to take and what I wanted to do couldn't be done anymore. Just, it just, it wasn't going to happen anymore. And so because I had a backup plan, I was able to shift in that direction. And so it's something that happened last week. It's something that, you know, and, it, and let me just take a step back for a second. Some people might say, because you have a backup or contingency plan, that you're not fully invested in the original plan or the main plan. And I'll counter that by saying this. The fact that you have a contingency plan means you fully committed to the original plan because you thought every possible scenario through and came up with an alternate solution just in case. It doesn't mean you're not going to fully walk forward on that path. It doesn't mean you're not going to fully invest yourself in the original idea. But it means that you prepared just in case that doesn't go the way you want it to go. And there's nothing wrong with that, whether it's a person, a thing, a big change, financials, whatever. You have the right to make sure that the path you're walking is the smooth path you want to take. You shouldn't walk on gravel and potholes just because they're there. Have a backup plan or an alternative plan or contingency plan to be able to move around those back to a smooth path. And so the thing that happened that I wanted to do I'm not able to do so I had to quickly shift to my backup plan and the timing of it just was perfect anyway just because of the other elements involved and so I'm able to quickly shift to that contingency plan now here's the part about being Dave and being a Capricorn I now have a backup plan for my backup plan right because now this contingency plan has become the main plan and I've also thought of a backup plan as well 
But until the contingency plan is activated, if you will, I'm not doing a backup plan. I don't need backup plans for backup plans for backup plans. There's a main plan and a contingency plan. And that's just how I think. Every single thing, like I said, if it's a thing, it's a place, it's a job, it's a financial, it's a person. There's always backup plans if, if you're Dave. The next thing that's on my mind is extreme weather. So living in PA all my life, in recent years, it's kind of become this unfortunate joke that we're Oklahoma East. And it's not a dig on Oklahoma. It's talking about the weather events that happened in Oklahoma in the flat plains of the United States. The remnants of Hurricane Ida, I believe the name of it was, kind of rolled through here last week, dumped a ton of water. Rivers flooding, literally a river flooded into one of our main highways, shut it completely down. Done. Couldn't drive. Th tens of thousands of cars passed through there every single day. Nothing. Couldn't do it. Strangely enough, by the way, people jumped off the overpasses into this water. Now, this is the Schuylkill River, which is not the cleanest river in the world anyway. And there were reports because my ass wasn't going down there. So, <coughs> excuse me. So I'm just hearing this. But there were reports that the smell was ridiculously bad. And people are jumping from the overpasses into this water. Oh, and by the way, last time I checked, there's a huge concrete center divider in the middle of this road. And they can't see it because the water's so high. So you're blindly jumping into this water. Makes no sense to me. You can't see what's in it. You don't know if the concrete dividers have shifted at all. So you can jump in there and break your whole damn neck. Another topic for another day. But when did this become Pennsylvania's thing? There were hurricanes all the time when I was younger. They kind of, you know, Hurricane Andrew, I think, rolled up the, or Floyd, one of the two, rolled up in the 90s. We had blizzards all the time. But now we got tornadoes recently. And New Jersey got hit hard. There was a massive tornado that just ripped through a neighborhood in Jersey, took out houses, all type stuff. Literally, the National Weather Service alerts saved people's lives. Their basements saved their lives in Jersey. But now we have to deal with this. And it seems like on the record. Last year, I think it was, Delaware got hit with a tornado. A good friend of mine had parts of his roof ripped off. And, another, and the house down the street I saw had just the whole half of the house was gone. When did this become our thing? Up here in the Northeast. And some may say climate change, global warming, pollution, warming atmosphere, volatile atmosphere, you may say. There's a lot of science behind what's happening right now. The warmer waters causing volatility in the atmosphere, stronger storms. Is that why we're now Oklahoma East? And will these things get worse and worse and worse? There was something like five or six tornadoes that touched down between Delaware, Jersey and Pennsylvania. That's that's just not our norm. But it's becoming our norm, which is kind of scary. The next thing that's on my mind is back to school and really the scary parts of back to school with, with schools opening back up, going in person. And I, I like to make a joke every once in a while. And it's nothing against kids at all because I, I want kids someday. But I like to make a joke that children are like walking Petri dishes, right? They get into everything. They get dirty. They get sweaty. They hug and kiss and wrestle and all type stuff and just and just spread everything they have to every other kid they can. Not intentionally, but just it's just the way it works out. But with schools starting back up and universities starting back up, 
literally today, LaSalle University, which is just outside of Philadelphia, or in Philadelphia, really, went 100% virtual because of an explosion of positive cases on campus in the last week. This is the reality of this pandemic that literally we're still in, even if people don't want to think about it. The entire university, think about that. All these kids coming back to school, young adults, we'll say, coming back to school. If it gets on by one of them, the potential to spread across the campus is very, very, very easy. Think of the movie theater. You ever seen the movie Outbreak? I think there's a scene where there was a couple, there was a guy and his, his girlfriend in the movie theater and he was starting to feel sick. They're kissing and he winds up coughing and just spreading stuff all over the movie theater. And then all those people go their own separate ways and do their own separate things. Think about that in the context of a campus. One person gets sick in one class. That Those students in that class go to other classes. Go to athlete, athletic events, locker rooms, all types of stuff. Go to the gym. Go to the cafeteria. Go see their roommates. They may not have any classes with them at all. It takes one person on a campus to cause an outbreak. And LaSalle is clearly having an outbreak the past week, and so they shut it down. But that's the scary thing about this. How will this school year go and how will universities respond to these types of situations? What's the threshold? Is it one? Is it 10? Is it 50? Is it a percentage of the population? What's the threshold to say, hey, we got, we got to stop this? What's that threshold? The last thing that's on my mind, you see if you're watching on YouTube, I'm wearing a green shirt that says, on Sundays, we wear green. That's an ode to my Philadelphia Eagles, of course. The NFL is back this week, starting this Thursday with, I believe, Tampa Bay and the Cowgirls, that, that squad from Texas. Yeah, I said exactly what you think I said. This past weekend, Tide rolled on, as I knew they would. You know, the quarterback from Miami was talking a lot of trash, and I wasn't that bad to beat down because you, you got to be able to walk the talk, right? So, but this week, the NFL is back. We're going to talk some stuff about the NFL later in this uh, episode, but I'm looking forward to it. Now, I know I said in the last episode I might be coming down to Atlanta. We'll see. By the time this episode airs, I'll either be in Atlanta or I won't be um, because this episode comes out on Friday. And if I do travel down there, it would be Friday. So we'll see. Maybe I'll share some pictures if I do go. We'll see what's going to happen. Coming up, though, we have a guest on to talk about tech and edtech, DE&I, and so much more. We'll have a conversation with her right after this. Simple solutions for complex problems. For 15 years, the mantra has been the practice of SRE Solutions, providing business intelligence, application and website design, and PC repair services for clients. SRE Solutions has a simple solution for your problem, regardless of the complexity. Contact SRE Solutions at www.sresolutions.org and get your problem resolved today. All right, so welcome back. So, you know, this time of year is one of my favorite times of the year. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking football day. We, we know Alabama, Philadelphia Eagles. We get it. We get it. But that's that's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the back to school stuff, right? So it's time where, you know, kids are slowly walking, annoyingly slowly walking to their school buses or off their school buses, which, by the way, 
why don't they teach children how to walk to the school bus? Like, seriously, they hold up traffic, bouncing basketballs, fidgeting, all this type of stuff. Anyway, it's a pet peeve of mine. But, and if you follow me on social media at all, you know I'm the co-president for the Black Alumni Association at Arcadia University, my alma mater. And last week we dropped off 1,300 plus items of school supplies for three third grade classes. And we, we virtually kind of presented it to them, which, you know, it's awkward. It's different, right? This, this whole thing is just different now between hybrid, in-person, virtual teaching. And the reason I'm talking about this, because I want to talk about my guest for this episode, Samantha Fletcher. We're going to talk about this stuff. So she's a wife and mother, two sons, and she loves to point out that her husband is an HBCU husband, by the way. Very proud of that. She's a former journalist, a recent graduate of Harvard Graduate School of Education, earning a master's in technology, innovation, and education. During her time at Harvard, by the way, she worked with the Birmingham Mayor's Office to help draft police reform policy recommendations, which kind of ties into our last episode, talking to our FBI agent of 30 plus years. Lastly, she also launched an initiative to highlight the intersection of ed tech and diversity and inclusion called tie-dye, which I'm excited to hear about. So, Samantha, welcome to Dave's Head. How's it going? It's going. It's going. It is uh, uh, back to school time. And it's funny that you're talking about the walking to the bus because my school, my I have two sons um, that will be riding the bus for the first time this year. So <laughs> I'm gonna have to make sure I talk to them about how to speed it up a little bit on their on their walk to the bus. But um, yeah, it's, it's just one. It's one of those things. Like you know, you're sitting there, you're waiting. You gotta you gotta wait for the lights to stop flashing in the bar, go away, and all that. And I no, I don't know anybody who runs that anyway. But and then you just, you just see these kids walking from like half a block away, just slowly walking to the bus. <laughs> so just like, I, somehow I didn't notice this. Somehow I'm like, I'm excited yeah. to see all the kids getting out of the bus. I got a teacher mindset, so I'm not noticing how slowly they're going, but yeah. Yeah. No, you don't see kids running to the bus. You just, you just don't see that. But anyway. Yeah. So I know I gave a small intro, but I like to have my guests introduce themselves. So if you could take a minute to tell the audience who you are, what you do, and what you're about. All right, thank you. So, um, hi, and, and I'm, I'm honored to be on this show, so thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, Samantha Fletcher, I live um, just outside of D.C. In, in what's called Prince George's uh, PG County. Um, and I was, I, you know, I, I, it's, I consider myself a former journalist, kind of. I also feel like journalism is one of those things that doesn't leave. So I'm kind of still a journalist, but um, yeah, an educator. And I did just uh, get a master's, a, a second master's, um, related to education, um, and I am doing a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which is really popular right now, um, but I'm looking at it um, at the intersection, uh, as it intersects with technology, as it intersects with education, and really trying to get people to see things that they don't see or that they don't notice, and trying to help help our help our babies and, and help help make the world a better place. That's what I'm, what I'm about. Yeah, we've had uh, the DE&I conversation on this podcast through both seasons uh, a number of times. Uh, Dr. Brandy Baldwin is a DE&I uh, consultant expert, so we've had her on a couple of times. It's, it's, it's a hot topic, but it's also a very relevant topic and, and a topic that needs to be discussed. So let, let's start the Q&A with this. You talked about the intersection, so talk about that a little more, the intersection in education, technology, innovation, race, DE&I, and really how you got started in this. Okay, so I mentioned that I was a journalist first, and it's interesting that I was kind of doing D, um, D&I stuff without realizing it. So I was uh, started out off as a um, reporter in Augusta, Georgia, at a newspaper there, the Augusta Chronicle. Um, and I was simultaneously working at a Clear Channel Radio, so doing um, production, um, a little bit of on-air stuff, but it was mostly, you know, uh, commercials and, and things like that at these, um, the kind of the old school station and the hip-hop station. And um, 
when I was a journalist, I covered different beats. The last beat was um, religion. And so, you know, I, I started a series on denominations. And so I would spend time with um, Jewish people on uh, Rosh Hashanah, which ironically is this week, right? Um, I would do, um, you know, go to a Sikh worship service, um, talk to people, Baptist uh, ministers, um, Catholic. I was talking to all these different people. And at the newspaper, I was pointing out things that were um, related to diversity, their version of it. Um, it's great, great experience. One of the things that was interesting was um, diversity. They wanted to be better at being a paper that, that thought about it. And every day on the wall was the, the different um, covers of the different uh, issues of a paper. And you'd look through and put like a purple sticky note if you saw diversity. And I was like, because those people would just put a sticky like under a black face or like it didn't matter. And I was like, diversity is a mix. Diversity is, it doesn't just mean wherever you see a black person. Um, so, you know, I talk about that. There would just be different things that I end up speaking up about that seemed a little questionable related to diversity, equity, or justice. And I didn't have a name for it at the time. Um, so got engaged, um, tr transitioned, moved up to the D.C. area and got an education um, in independent schools. And working in independent schools, it was kind of a culture shock. I didn't expect a lot of diversity, I think, but I didn't realize just how much of a lack um, I would see and how kind of normalized it was. And I, I did this, this was like 09, um, 2010. And um, so, you know, if you if a class is going to have like one to three, you know, black students uh, or kids of color, everybody else would be mostly white. Um and they might get questioned, and I, this, I'm talking, I was at the preschool kindergarten level, so kids might get questioned, and it would be innocent um, questions, but if you are getting questions about your skin color, um, you're still, like, when there's not a lot of you, it's, even if the questions are innocent, you're feeling kind of like the spotlight's on you, and that kind of, um, that started a lot of me figuring out, like, what can I do, how can I help with this, what, what can I do that's different, because a lot of the teachers I would talk to would say things like, oh, that always happens. That's just how it is. And so the short version is I, I realized that we were being reactive. And I'm like, what can we do to be proactive? And I went back um, enrolled in the University of Maryland, or I was already enrolled um, when, when a lot of this started hitting me, that I wanted to be proactive. And so I did my thesis on how to proactively include everybody. And then I just like revamped curricula and started designing curricula at the preschool and kindergarten level that talked about race, that was identity-based, that was inclusive, and some people would find out about it, and next thing you know, I'm like, you know, training teachers and talking to teachers about how to also do that, because people think it's something you talk about, you know, when you're at middle school or high school, but by then, so much, you know, the research shows that opinions are formed, and then you have to do a lot of unlearning and, and thinking about things differently, um, but... Yeah, so just a lot of the questions or the comments or the wonderings or things that I thought, okay, I'm reacting to this after it happened. How can I equip my kids so they know how to be allies early or they know, even if you're not a black person, you know why, you know something about black hair. You know something about skin color. You know something about different cultures. Why can't we be proactively talking about this? And so, you know, I started having my kids do that. So by the time you left, you know, Ms. Fletcher's class, no matter what color you were, you knew, uh, you knew something about race in this world and, and culture in this world and kind of grew from there. Gotcha. So, so what is the biggest challenge with the tr achieving true DE&I in education? What's the biggest challenge? I think um, people actually 
accepting, first of all, that, that there is an issue, you know, the George Floyd thing last summer highlighted itself for so many people. And if you were a black person doing this work, or maybe just a black person in general, you were glad to see so many people. Now, I remember calling my friends being like, are you seeing this? Are you watching TV? Do you see all these white people that are actually marching and stuff for Black Lives Matter? And so on the one hand, you felt glad, you know, that it was finally happening. But on the other hand, you felt a little bothered that it took so long. It's like, you know, you hate it to, for George, what happened to him to have happened to him and the Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, all these things. She's like, we've been saying for years. So I think um, for people to get that it needs to happen, but also a major thing is to, I don't know when this is going to happen. It's like, I wouldn't need my job. Like my job would go away. That's what should happen at some point. You wouldn't need a DI um, person, but they need to not treat it as separate. So very often it's this thing over here, you know, you got DI all over here and everything else over here. And one of the things that I say is who I am, I take with me wherever I go. So I'm black and I'm a woman when I'm in a math class or when I am in a meeting about something like as an administrator. But you have this whole separate diversity, um, equity and inclusion meeting or area and people aren't realizing it's like you got to fuse these things together. And I think that is one of the challenges to get people to see like now that I've graduated and I'm, you know, kind of in the job market and doing the, this independently. But when I'm looking at all the jobs, it's still a separate thing. You got a DEI person, and then you have like a instructional designer or something with tech. Um, why can't that job description say an instructional designer who is experienced with DEI? Like, why does it, why do you need to choose one or the other? Um, I do media stuff. I do editing video. I do instructional design. I do um, UX. But if I get a job in that, I'll carry this DEI stuff with me. But it's also like I almost have to choose if I want to do that or if I want to do that, you know. And so I think it's really commonplace for people to keep these so separate um, when they really need to be fused. Yeah, it's that just way. a matter of, you know, you have a toolbox. So why just limit it to just one tool and you know, exactly. walk away when you have so many tools and skill sets out there that, that you can get from people? So, yeah, that right. absolutely makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's shift just a little bit. So as a, as a parent, and you look to educate and guide your children and you have two yeah. sons, correct? Yep. Yeah. So, so what things should be taught? What things do you teach around or children around race and D and I? So my sons will tell you, it's funny. They're six and nine and the nine year old does not remember time. Not, he never remembers not talking about race. Um, and we, we're very comfortable with talking about race in my, in my house. And I actually held a, a thing last year, um, a meeting to help parents, like black parents on this topic, because I help uh, people who aren't black all the time with like, you need to, you know, this needs to be happening. Um, and so for parents who aren't, for parents who aren't black, a lot of what you get is, well, it's, it's too, you know, they're too young, they're too little. And, you know, other parents are like, but if, if my child is not too little to experience this, why, I mean, they're like not, we're not, even if we aren't teaching about it, they're experiencing it. So how come they can experience it, but your child can't talk about it? There's, there's something wrong there. Um, but for my own children, I didn't want them to, I didn't want to wait until it got to the point where they were the, um, on the receiving end of something. And then it, it surprises them. I, I want to, you know, I let them know you are great. People are going to treat you like you're not. Those people have the problem, not you. Always remember that. Like they're going to look at, they're going to look at your skin. 
Um, you got people in this world who just assume that because your skin color is brown, that you're not as smart, you're not as creative, you're not as all these things. Is, does that make sense? This is the kind of stuff I would say to the kindergartners and things like that. Does that make Does that sound right? What do you think about that? And, you know, they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. I know who I am. Like, my nine-year-old is vegetarian. Uh, he tested, qualified, like, on Mensa level. It, he's, he's, um... He's, he does his art. He writes books. He does all these things that I feel like people wouldn't think of a black boy, right? You don't, that you put these in, in somebody else's um, lap. And then the, uh, my six-year-old is just funny, silly. You know, it's, it's these things that I don't want them to lose. And I want them to know it's okay to be who you are and don't live up to these other people's expectations. So I think um, parents get nervous about talking about race. I also do tell them... Um, that people, you know, people of different races are fair. People of different races aren't fair. Um, so it's no, there is no blanket thing, even though you'll hear that there's a blanket thing. You know, all white people do this, all black people do this. But let them know that's not true. And, I, you know, I let them know adults are wrong sometimes. And so it's, it's all these things that I want to equip them with so they're not blindsided. And I think parents should really think about, you know, doing that. Like, it's... It's, I, I think one thing, and we'll probably get to like some of the critical race theory stuff, but I think one thing um, that scares white people um, and some people of color who are against the teaching of critical race theory, but this whole issue that comes up, the, what, from what I'm hearing from a lot of people who are white, um, are feeling that they, it makes them look bad. You know, people are going to consider them racist. People are going to think that they're bad people. And... Um, for one thing, the whole critical race theory, calling it that is something else. But but it's like when I talk to, to my kids and when I talk to my, you know, pre, um, kindergartners, I would tell them the people who founded this country got it wrong. They did look, this is what they look like, right? But we're talking about them. They Those people are long gone. Um, and, you know, I make it age appropriate. I'm sure there are people now who still are very much um, not on the positive side of things. But I'm talking about, you know, we, this is not about making people hate white people, hate black people. It's not anything about that. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, here's what happened when the country started. Did that sound right or wrong? Okay, now let's learn from let's, let's learn from that. Um, so it's, it's kind of in a nutshell or a long nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and the thing about CRT that always bothers me is it's just talking about historical fact. And you really, it's, it's a marketing thing, right? Critical race theory just sounds like it's attacking race or speaking negatively about race. But it's really just critical historical fact theory. I mean, that's, that's really yes. what it is. And yeah. there are people in this country who have a problem with facts and history, even though it's facts and history. And exactly. it, it always just, just boggles my mind that people make a big deal out of CRT because it's, it's, we have history books. Some of right. them are factual, some of them are not. We're just talking about factual history. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. And, you know, critical race theory started as, um, the name itself, Kimberly Crenshaw and a number of others, um, created this with law school. Like, this is a legal kind of term. Like, what, what is happening in schools is they're wanting children to think critically, and they might be teaching about race, but nobody is nobody's teaching critical race theory in school. Not the way mm -hmm. that the legal scholars are pouring through cases and, and stuff like that. So, like, that's not what's happening. So, kind of bugs me that, you know, this has been, like, it's just taken off that that's what's happening. What's actually yeah. happening is teaching things that hadn't been taught before because they just weren't included and it's like all right let's actually talk about what happened 
um, in this country, I remember having a coworker um, who was a, a Japanese woman, and she moved here um, at some point in her adult life, and she was teaching. Um, and she talked about how in Japan, they started like in kindergarten learning about some of the wars or some of the um, some of the way the hard things in their countries in age-appropriate and developmentally appropriate ways. But she talked about how that was started early to not have things repeated. So it's like, look, this happened in Japan's history. Is this the way we want to go? And it's, it's that same kind of thing here that, that's going on now that people are kind of losing their heads about. Yeah, there's there's an old saying, those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. And that might not be the exact quote. It's a, you know, paraphrasing, but that's, <laughs> that's the gist of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's, it's, it's nuts. Um, Speaking of history, just real quick, I'll, I'll throw in that um, the who's considered the father of black history, um, Dr. Carter G. Woodson. One of my thoughts is that um, the important, like I think a lot about the role of education and race and racism and all of these things. And I think people think about Black History Month and there's diversity and controversy. I mean, there's controversy over where you know how that should go. But he started um, Negro History Week. I like found this fascinating article that like moved me um, last year when it was talking about why he started it. And um, one of the things that it got into, his own words were talking about how the way uh, black people were uh, taught about, the way they were seen and, and portrayed in schools, there was like a direct correlation to the racism um, and the treatment they experienced outside of schools. And so for me, that was huge because I had long been thinking, what is our role um, as educators? I thought, if you think about George Floyd and his killer, Breonna Taylor and hers and all these people, like we all go to school, you know, like we go to different restaurants, we go to different doctors, dentists, and, and all these kinds of things, but we're all kind of educated in the same ways. And we become these adults who seem to feel like there's a racial hierarchy. And I just don't think that there's an accident. I think school is the one thing that we have in common more than a lot of other things. And I think whether you're, you know, I don't think teachers are today flat out saying the N word and, you know, um, calling students names, but they are missing a lot through microaggressions and, and ways that, that they're treating um, their students. They're sending these subliminal messages on who's important and who's not. And I, I think we really need to, um, I think that really needs to be looked at. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, as adults, we spend the bulk of our time throughout the course of the day working or at work or whatever our career path is. Children spend the bulk of their day in school. So school is a big part, if not the biggest part outside of family, parents, influencing and guiding students. That's the that's the biggest influence they have. That is so, right. For years right. until you become an adult, you've been influenced mm -hmm. by your schooling. Um, you know, after, after 18, you spend a few years at college, you have this job, that job, all that stuff keeps changing. But for the first 18 or well, you start school at like four or five. So for 14 years, mm -hmm. every day, this is influencing you. I think that's something to be looked at more than, more than it is. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, real quick, talk about your work at Harvard. I know I mentioned you working with the mayor's office for, um, uh, I think it was Birmingham, correct? Yeah. Birmingham. Yeah mayor's office so talk about some of the things you did because you did a lot more than just that working with <laughs> I, I did um the funny thing about about that so my degree you mentioned that uh the degree is in technology innovation and education and i'm realizing that i said all the things i said and didn't quite talk a lot about the technology piece um but what was interesting is all of that the um the program is called tie for short right so tie courses were in the ed school 
And I would find myself drifting to other classes outside of that just because of the past. This is how you know. I feel like people are like, how do you know what, my, what your passion is? Or how do you know? I know it's diver- it's justice, it's fairness, because so many times when I was in schools, I'd be like, that's it. This year, I'm not getting involved. I'm done. And then like three weeks later, I'm back in because something unfair has happened. So it's your passion. So that Birmingham course came out of... Um, so when you're at Harvard, you do this thing called course shopping. That was new for me. I was like, what is this now? Because most uh, colleges or universities, you look in the book and like, that's what you sign up for, right? <laughs> but no, 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 at Harvard, there is a book, but there's also times, it's almost like professors are pitching ideas to try to get you to see if you like the course. So there's actual time to visit with the professors where they actually talk about these things. So you have time to decide. And, so since I was virtual, it was a lot easier, and um, you could just sit there and do it on Zoom. And so Cornell Williams Brooks, um, former president of NAACP and other things, was leading this course called Creating Justice in Real Time. This is in the, at the Harvard Kennedy School. So this is not at my school at all. It wasn't at the Ed School, but I was like, wait, what is this? And so he was going to be placing people at different mayor's offices around the country to either work with um, the COVID crisis or work with police reform, like in real time. He hadn't offered this before. He was only doing it then. I'm like, I, what, I can't, not, can I not, I cannot not take this course. And so um, I wanted, I knew I wanted to, to help with police reform. So I ended up enrolling um, at the petition to get in because I'm not in Kennedy school. So I got in and um, I found out about Birmingham. There were some other cities, but that was my first choice. And yeah, I was on this team of people and it was it was an interesting experience because they wanted to do some what of an overhaul and they wanted they had their task force of people and then they had all these meetings with people by um you know, teenagers they met with, people who were recently released from prison or former offenders, um uh, or justice impacted is the, the new name that they they gave it um so it was all these people that you met with and and talked to and then you know looked at what needs there were and, and we helped draft we ended up drafting this like 50 something page thing and i know nothing about policy um and i was like am i gonna be able to do this but the people on the team were were great there were some kennedy students a med, a med school student a divinity student um and it was a it was a really great experience and so all of doing that and then being a tech person, um, I, being in tech. So Harvard has in their ed school, they had all these tracks. So there's a lot of people, I think a lot of people of color were in like the ed policy track or the teaching and learning or the leadership. There wasn't a ton of us in the TIE. Um, most, the majority of TIE students are white or international. Um, and so I, I kind of talk about like what I saw, I, I was a, an equity and inclusion fellow at Harvard. And so, um, so what I, I did a number, a, a number of, um, work workshops around the schools and at, at different schools talking about fairness, justice, um, equity, identity, names, accents, like all these different things. Um, language, who's English, like who, who has the rights for English and, and what about different dialects and all that. Um, and so I, was really thinking a lot about the tech industry because of my courses and like looking around at like who's there. And once you leave Harvard, right, once you leave these Ivy League schools, like that's who the tech companies are hiring. And I'm looking at these people and I'm thinking about, okay, who's coming to these diversity and equity DEI, DEIB meetings and who's not? And 
what what can I do about that, right? Like, how can I make sure that these people in my cohort who will go on, and even if they get like an entry-level job, which they probably won't, but even if they're not at the head, at some point they're going to be leaders. What do I want them to be thinking about in terms of people who look like me, um, people who don't look like them? Like, what do I, me for one, but like I'm thinking about, you know, other black people, other brown people, other other people who are not usually included in these spaces. And like, how can I help them? Um, how can I do something to help make sure that like the people, at least in my cohort, are thinking about people like us when they when they leave? Uh, which which and I ended up forming this other thing called tie dye that you mentioned. Which is actually transitioned to my next question, which is going to be my next question. So talk about tie dye and what impact do you hope that tie-dye has yeah so tie-dye tie-dye grew um i really wanted to just i was like noticing little microaggressions in my classes um i would notice you know this one class um there were some speakers that came in and they were uh, you know there was a lot they were from so this class is called this class had to do with um children's media and so there were some pretty um popular uh shows um company organizations one in particular and they different representatives from that company would come and they none of them all, all of them were white except except one and so people in the course would just ask you know can you tell us about diversity at your company can you tell us what you do and, and they would keep listen dave i they kept saying um you know we just can't find any writers of color you know we just can't find any black writers you know we we just can't find we had different ones on different days i'm like is this rehearsed how are all these different people saying this you know that they just can't find uh writers of color and i'm thinking i'm right there's one here and i can't be the first one um and so you know it got to a point where a number of students in the class people were reaching out to me privately you know sending me texts or or private um chats and zoom and saying you know, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, what, what can we do? Because I was an equity and inclusion fellow, you know. And um, interestingly, some of these same people would, would be proud to say that they had partnered, you know, after the George Floyd thing, they partnered with some black writers to make sure they got it right and they did some episodes. And I'm thinking, well, how do I find somebody in like a week? And y'all couldn't find them in 10 years. Like, what, what, what is happening here? And why, you know, you know, it turns out that the, that company had a whole, uh, they had a thing for diverse writers like at their company and they still weren't choosing them when they did it at the end of their it was it, it drove me nuts i was very disappointed in that um and so afterwards prior to that i had talked to um one of the leaders of the program and asked i was like can i do something i'm an, as i'm an equity fellow for the ed school in general but for my cohort can i hold some meetings and do some stuff and she's like yes go for it whatever you want to do and that was in fall fall got busy so um, January comes, I take this course, and I'm like, I can't go any further. I got to get this done. So I reach out to some people, and I say, hey, do you guys want to help me? I want us to hold some meetings. We need to do something. We got to educate some people. We got to help. We, there's something that needs to happen. And, and um, about eight of them say, yes, I'm in. What, what can we do? First thing was to come up with a name. And, you know, I'm thinking, like, the Justice League. I'm thinking of these different things. And somebody's like, well, we're TIE. What if it's tie-dye? And I'm thinking, they're thinking about the tie-dye blending the colors together. And I was like, fantastic. We'll spell it D-I-E, diversity, clear. So it took off because I started just inviting people. I started hosting these meetings where I invite somebody from Google, um, somebody from Curriculum Associates, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, all these places. And I'm like, what I'd like you to do, we'll be looking for jobs soon. Can you talk about 
your journey we talked about different things okay what was the recruiting process like that's just one meeting um what is the job like itself whatever they talked about there had to be an element of dei that they would discuss also and so it just started growing and then it wasn't enough for me i was like eh, people were coming not everybody that needs so i need to do more all right what else it's kind of personal I'm like what else what what next what next and so i reached out to the professors and i was like hi you know i've been in your courses some of you i haven't but I, I hear a lot of diversity stuff in the ed school, and so tie-dye has started, and I'm wondering if you guys would lead some. And some of them, uh, a couple of them didn't. A couple of them said they were busy, but for the most part, they said yes, and then I started this thing called tie-dye talks. And so it was a weekly thing where every week a Harvard professor would take pick their own topic. So somebody did something on digital puppeteering, which is this whole thing for another show, another time that exists with trainings and simulations and AI and like diversity in that and what's needed. Um, somebody did something on ELL and the pandemic. Um, there was something on math and, and diversity. I mean, it just kept growing. And the last one was I came back to the children's media thing because that never sat well with me and that, that never got resolved. And I invited, I found, Lord, it just kept working out, right? Like I found somebody who had done the program that didn't get, I ended up with this verse panel of these writers and children's media talking about the journeys and somebody came from Disney and PBS and um, who had maybe written for Nickelodeon and, and like Scholastic and all these people came. Um, there's a white, black woman, um, somebody from LGBTQ, there was like this whole diverse diversity of people talking about like what the experiences were. And so, so tie became this space for people to come and hear or come and share or come and listen and come and learn about like, for one, you do exist. Um, and if, if this person doesn't look like you, they can at least tell you what channels and like what helps. So that's how it started. And then once I was graduating, I was like, I don't want tie-dye to end. And ironically, um, I, the, I, there was an article on me in the Gazette, Harvard Gazette, uh, uh, by the grace of God, right? This um, Harvard alum who's all the way in Albany, New York, finds me on Facebook. She sends me a Facebook Messenger thing, and she says, I want to know, how can I get my students involved in your tie-dye program? And at this point, I'm like, this is not even fully yet a program, <laughs> but I'm going to make it a program. And so now I'm working on pivoting to um, make this uh, student like a student version of it and so i've been in talks with a couple of people um i have a, a um somebody at mit who was talking about you know she she's giving me guidance and thinking about like what is it that black students and students of color need like what maths what things should they be taking like what she was she's been researching like the barriers and them getting to these engineering schools and these tech places and some of it has to do with like not even taking the right courses in the first place in high school so now i'm pivoting tie-dye to be you know somewhat of a children's space so this year is a pilot year uh, i am working with that i'm planning to work with that high school um and there's an elementary school so different people are reaching out and i want to let tie-dye have its adult version i'm still figuring that out um how to continue that but also the student version where i'm helping like Helping it to be TIE, Technology, Innovation, Education, but also STEM and STEAM. And like, what do we need to think about as students of color? Um, so if a student is in tie-dye, right, at their school, then it's going, they're, they, either they have to be a student of color, or if they're not a student of color, they still have to um, focus on or care about issues that, that affect underrepresented groups. 
And so, you know, we'll do some designing, I'll, you know, connect them with um, people to think about, you know, when they, at, at these big um, tech companies, but I really want them to focus on like, are you taking the right math things? And then like, what help do you need to get into those courses and things like that? That was kind of a long answer, so. <laughs> well, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's an excellent um, idea and, and tie-dye sounds pretty, pretty dope if you ask me. Um, and speaking of things that students need to learn, and this is a little off topic from tie-dye, but financial literacy. I think financial literacy needs to somehow be taught in school. Um, the I still ways. need financial literacy. <laughs> we all, we all kind of do. Listen, I shift my financial plan so much throughout the year. I go from zero base budgeting to yeah, I do envelope budgeting. I do all type stuff. But um, the the idea is you know to to make sure there's savings and retirement and all that stuff. But I think that needs to be brought back into the schools, especially the the inner city schools, because a lot of our students don't learn financial literacy until they find themselves deep in debt. Yeah, Don't you say, I feel like that reminds me of the, you know, like when you think about um, athletes that go and, and, and the ones who came from homes that, um, you know, that maybe didn't, there was a, a high level of income. Um, and then suddenly you go from that to millions. Like I did not grow up with money. Okay. But my money came incrementally. And then, and then I, I took a whole year off to go to Harvard. I ain't have no huge, sa I mean, I'm black woman in America. I did not have some huge savings and I didn't want to come out in the debt. So that was another, you know, I, I'm, I'm rebuilding now. So, but imagine, I just can only, I don't even know how it would have been if I had gone from like what I, the, the pennies that I left home with, right. To millions. Um, and cause I didn't get, I didn't get it all, all the, I, I just, I feel like financial literacy is one of those helpful things and, and high schools in general doing, um, courses that can actually, not that you don't need to learn, you know, a lot of the stuff, but I wish that there was more of a choice on things like that, like, like redlining when I'm doing DEI stuff that teaches you kind of, Oh, this is how it came to be. And then stuff like you're saying, like financial literacy and stuff, stuff that you're going to use in a way that you, that you won't be able to use Shakespeare you know, in a way that you, you will use <laughs> these practical things like that. Yeah. I, I still can't find a, a example of me using Shakespeare in my daily life, but definitely math and sciences, <laughs> physics. I was a physics and math double major at one point. So yeah, I, I find reasons to use those every day. Shakespeare, I could care less about, but that's just me. Yeah. I get it. Same. <laughs> so, so last, last Q and a question. So talk about a bit about your podcast, which is called border crossings, uh, what it covers, how it came about. Talk about your podcast. Yeah, so it's called Daily Border Crossings, um, and that came about, um, it's been kind of brewing. I, I did, did radio way back, um, and so, I, so I, I was missing media, the whole TIE, like all of this, I was missing the journalism side of things and, and telling people stories, um, telling the stories of people. And when I was in, um, so I went to the University of Maryland for the first master's. Harvard was the second one. The first one was in curriculum and instruction. And when I was there, it was focused on uh, minority and urban and multicultural education. And so I'm taking all that stuff because there's like a weird layer that's on my nerves. So when when I was there, um, again, I told you how this justice stuff. I think about it a lot, and I thought about. I, I used to think a lot about what it felt like um, to be in a space. I told you I worked in independent schools, and you know. There's, I mentioned at the student level, there's um, not a lot of diversity, but, but at the adult level too. Uh, so if there's there's a couple of people that look like you and then everybody else that doesn't, like what, what that does to your psyche. Um, and I think, just going back quickly to your question about um, what needs to happen or the changes in, in terms of people seeing the differences, when people think about men versus women, it's a lot easier to see 
than the racial component. And an example would be, it's like way back when Hillary was kind of new to the Senate or when women were kind of entering the Senate, they felt like a huge male presence. And, and that it eventually got talked about a lot more where it's like, here's things that men need to be thinking about in order for women to feel like they fit in. So the same thing with schools. When you have this predominantly white presence in, at the student level, but also at the adult level, it was talked about a lot less, it seemed. It's like, here's what you need to be thinking about for these adults of color who are here. Um, and so, so daily border crossings is like when you are one person um, surrounded by other and what that what that feels like. And so in that first graduate school program, I came across a story that um, that gave me the, the idea for the name of it. If I'm like, this enco encompasses what I'm thinking if I do a podcast. It was a uh, story about these, this uh, scholarly article, these Cambodian students and, uh, or students from some country who weren't doing well in a course uh, in their high school. And it was just like commonplace that, well, these students just underperform. That's just how it is. And it was this person who was researching this that wrote this article that started spending time with them. And she realized it was for all these cultural reasons. When they would take a test, they're like, for, they gave an example of something about American football on some math thing. And it's like, they didn't watch football, right? Like, and so you're not going to know that one score is six and then one point and then like, so there's seven points. Like, you're going to miss out. Like, that's just one example. But there were other things that they weren't, um, that was hard for them to pass. So it wasn't that these students were just not smart. It was that each day they felt like they were crossing a border to, to be there and leaving behind who they were. And so that's what the show is about. It's like feeling that you have to leave pieces of yourself at the door because you're going to cross over and be in the space where everybody or the majority of them are different from you and most of them now granted this is um generally speaking because some people will actually acknowledge your presence actually um give a crap you know about your culture and, and be inclusive but for the most part you know you feel like or you have to give up a lot of um yourself uh, a lot of like what means a lot to you what matters to you in order to fit in with the norms of the the masses so the show, the very first episode is um, this woman who uh, is a white woman who is constantly fighting racism. And she talks about what she learned as a teacher and what she knows that teachers need to think about. But like, there's been like some really powerful episodes. Um, this one, one of, one of the ones that like gives me chills when I listen to it is this woman who um, is black, but she's from South Africa. So she talked about how she's like, I never noticed my race. I never noticed my blackness as much. Like I never thought about it so much until I got here. And she comes, she comes here, and she's treated, you know, in these ways that she felt. She said she felt like she would when she would go to work each day. She had to put on a whole different self. And she said that felt like her words were the weight of whiteness, um, just to be there and to navigate. And sometimes during the day she'd go, she'd have a cry, and then she'd go back out and, you know. Um, there's uh, uh, an episode of um, some indigenous people who talk about, you know, the Washington football team, like how hard that was and like what it's like to actually be an indigenous person in this country to sit through classes where where Indians are talked about and how that whole thing is taught and brushed over. And you're like, wait, I actually come from um, I lived on like a reservation. I actually know what it's like. You know, one person talked about being at Brown. And somebody in class, the, the topic of Native Americans came up and somebody said, oh, you mean dinosaurs? And she was like, like this person says this, not knowing that she's there. And um, she's like, 
hello, actually, we're not dinosaurs. And, and she's like, the person was like stunned that that they actually still exist. And I'm like, is it that bad that people, you know, and so there's somebody in India talking about what it's like in her country. Um, so the show is mostly in the States, but there have been episodes with like, there's the India person um, that took it outside of the States. But for the most part, it's like, um, there's also a popular one with these, these two Asian teachers who talked about the model minority, talked about the pandemic, and they talked about how, you know, giving up your name, like, they have one name, but it's hard to say, so they just, you know, completely change it to something that is easier for um, someone in this country to say and call themselves to go by something else at home and how that was okay, and now she's, you know, she's dealing with thinking about teaching her son a different way and, and not to assimilate, um, so, yeah, and then there's like a couple of, uh, of experts or, or who I feel like are big names, Reverend Otis Moss out of uh, church in, uh, Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, whose dad marched with Dr. King, and he has some great stuff to say. And then the president of UMBC, who I just learned is um, retiring this year, um, Dr. Freeman Herbowski, who's like this huge civil rights legend. He agreed to come on the show, and he gave all this good advice about... Um, you know, what, how black people, we, we need mentors, but we need to go beyond mentors and have a champion. And I'm like, what, what is a champion? I say, Thank you. Let me eat up this advice. And he's like, a champion is somebody who will knock doors down doors for you. So like a mentor is like, they can guide you. They'll tell you, give you advice. But the champion is somebody who's established enough that they can go out in front of you and they can, they can call back somebody and say, okay, tell me why that person didn't get a second call back. Like, tell me, tell me what they need to get this job. Like how other a lot of people in the majority have those kinds of um, people, and we don't. So you're going to get it from the show. You're going to hear firsthand experiences of people who felt like they had to cross the border. And maybe you can relate to that. Um, or maybe you can learn from it because you are somebody who made somebody feel like they had to cross the border. Um, and then all these things tangential to that to get these points. So I'm, I'm gearing up for uh, season two now um, with Harvard, with graduating. Season one ended in April kind of sad that it's almost September, but um, season two will be starting soon, so <laughs> thank you for asking about Daily Border Crossings, yes. Gotcha, and I apologize for, for butchering the name, I actually knew it was Daily Border Crossings, but I still just said Border Crossings, which is strange. No worries at all. So that's all for the Q&A segment of this interview, and now we're going to move to my favorite segment with my guest called First Thoughts, and for those listening for the first time, like I always say, shame on you, but I'm happy you're here. The way First Thoughts works I ask my guests a question or a phrase and the idea is what's their first thought. They're not privy to these words or phrases. I don't share them with them because obviously I want to get their first thought. So Samantha, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. I'm wondering so, about this, but I'm ready. <laughs> everybody worries about it. It's okay. All right. So okay. the first first thought, and we kind of touched on a little bit before, and actually a couple of my uh, first thoughts we actually touched on, but I'm going to ask them anyway. So if I say back to school to you, what's your first thought? My first thought now is relaxed because I was a teacher for 11 years. <laughs> and this year I did not have to return to work last Monday like so many of my teacher friends. Um, but so that's a relaxation piece. And it's also a little bit of anxiety because of my own kids going mm -hmm. to a new grade and hoping that they'll be safe, especially in this pandemic and they're starting a new school. Gotcha. So next first thought, if I say public versus private schools to you, what's your first thought? Ooh, that they have so much to learn from each other that I wanted public school stuff. And I forgot to mention that I just did a, um, spent the summer with Boston public schools at the district level. And they have a lot in common. 
but a lot that is different and they both have a ways to go with DEI, diversity, equity, and race work. Okay. And so we actually talked about this already, but I'm asking anyway, but because I want to get your first reactionary thought to CRT. What's your first thought? Ugh, man. Annoying, frustrating. Uh, it's misrepresented. Um, I wish it would go away. <laughs> uh, I want people to get that CRT. You know, if CRT meant what it used to mean, uh, culturally responsive teaching, mm. <laughs> that that is the good part of CRT. But this critical race theory nonsense is nonsense, and it's not what's it's first of all critical race theory is not problematic anyway but that is not what's being taught in schools and um i I wish people would learn the truth and allow the truth the 1619 project allow all these things to be taught so that our children can um can grow and learn and sorry last thing but the people who are fighting this someone else a fellow harvard student pointed out to me she's like you know it's gonna um hurt them in the end because they're not letting their kids learn they're trying to keep them from learning these things that might be questions on like, say a college application thing. Can you yeah. write an essay on this? And then who's going to be able to write the essays on this? Right. Well, the students, students of color, students who are actually participating. So you're hurting yourself in the end. Hmm. I did not think about that part of it at all. Huh. Right. Me neither. So next to last first thought, if I say pandemic and education to you, what's your first thought? Pandemic. We're in a double pandemic. So I think about um, COVID and racism. <laughs> um, and I think that people, we, we gotta be very careful going back to schools. I think people were excited to return to the old way. The old way had a lot of problematic things. So I, I think that we smart teachers and smart educators and smart leaders should really take this opportunity to learn the parts of the pandemic that were helpful and they need to return to schools if they are, but not return to the old ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. Hybrid um, helped kids who felt like they experienced microaggressions, um, experienced language barriers, the positive sides, maybe they didn't have some access, but some positive sides is those kids were got the chance to be in nurturing homes where they didn't have to be um, made to feel bad with about how they spoke about their language about a second language about what they look like there was this nurturing happiness and now they're going to go back into these spaces where they could be subjected to being teased or Mm -hmm. not included again i think teachers need to think about that think about who's coming back to you so i think about was it was hard for teachers i heard a lot of teachers complaining and i get it it was hard at the same time it was it could be harder for students to return. And I think they need to get some DEI training. Um, I think they need to return. Remember, think about who's returning to them and think about how those students deserve to be treated and not do everything the way they used to do it. Hmm. I love that answer, by the way. Love that answer. Um, so last uh, first thought, if I say the future yep. of tech and ed tech to you, what's your first thought? That technology i'm sorry education is a field that hadn't changed and reverend otis moss mentioned this on my podcast that made me thinking it got me thinking it had become kind of an assembly line-ish thing it was a field that really hadn't changed in like 100 years Mm -hmm. as so many other fields have and that the pandemic um as as bad as it was gave us a chance because of technology because of ed tech to get education to change and so when I think about ed tech and technology, you know, 
I think about the power that it has to really capitalize on this moment to do some things called um, blended learning, to create this different software, um, to impact positively some change that's needed to like help lead at the forefront. I think teachers need to think about, remember, you're not teaching technology. You're using technology to teach. And if it can help you reach more students and reach more people at any grade level, um, utilize that. There's a lot of ed tech and tech spaces right now that want to be involved with education and that really want to help. And I think people need to take advantage of it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all about technology. So any any advancements in technology in any industry, I'm all for. So that I'm, that's perfectly fine with me. And I think the, the the hybrid approach, and I think the virtual learning, and there's so many different ways. It's so Microsoft's been doing it for a while with their online courses for certifications. You're taking certification tests. They're they're scanning your background to make sure you're not looking at a different screen to get answers. I mean, they've been doing this for a while, um, but it, it's time that we we utilize some of this stuff in schools as well. Um, yeah, and I think for me with um, doing a DEI stuff, I had to transition. It used to be all in person. Mm -hmm. And I did a, an in-person thing at, at the school in Albany that I mentioned. Um, uh, shout out to Tech Valley High. In uh, like like last week or two weeks ago, that was the first time since 2019 that I've done in person. So when I thought about switching to virtually leading works, I'm like, I'm never going to be able to do this. This is going to be hard. And it, it was seamless. Like, it wasn't so seamless, but I got used to it and people got used to it. Mm -hmm. And so... Now, when I do my workshops, I also infuse some more of this ed tech stuff, some more of these, you know, I, I'll, there'll be a link, we'll go to a website, and instead of just talking in a breakout room, you're at a site that you've clicked on that lets you put stickies, you know, like arrange your thoughts, you can do mind mapping, mm -hmm. so while you're in the group, you're actually adding your thoughts, and you know, there's, there's so much you can do with technology to teach people, but to also have meetings, and to also be interactive, and um and you know to, to bring people together in ways that i think that they're not um thinking about at least i'm, I'm thinking about it giving myself an edge <laughs> i think to <laughs> to my workshops and things like that so it's like you know how can i use the best of the two worlds that i love the most mm -hmm. and and put them together uh, so i love technology too gotcha well samantha that's all for the interview but before i let you go like all my guests would like to give you the opportunity to talk about anything or promote anything so if there's anything you want to talk about or promote feel free now thank you so much um so i would like to talk about as i mentioned daily border crossings um make sure you uh check it out uh, it's on apple it's on spotify daily border crossings that's crossings with an s um but, you know, I'll promote my, my son's TikTok channel because he's an artist. KJ.does.good.art. Um, he's been doing, um, like, protest art. So, like, the, the fists and, you know, he's a writer. He does a lot of digital art. Um, and he like, he's going to third grade, but, like, I, we've been super impressed and amazed at, like, what, what he's doing. Um, and then tie-dye. So tie-dye.co. It's not .com. It's .co. So T-I-E-D-I-E dot C-O. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, again, it's the, the intersection of tech and, and ed tech and diversity, um, inclusion and equity. And so you can, you can, um, find it there. And then also lastly, my own website, samithafletcher.com. It's where, in case people are looking for some of this kind of, um, some of this training that's going to be forward thinking and it's going to include, include technology, but really get you to kind of reflect and, and move and grow. Um, you can reach out to me and find me there. All right. And I was okay. I was gonna mention your son's TikTok because I actually checked it out. It's kind of cool, um, but yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
It's good stuff. For like a, I'm like, you're nine. Yeah. This is really good stuff, KJ. Like you, yeah, it just like comes to him. Like the coding, the, the digital art, yo, he was spending like literally three days on one project. We were like, what are you doing? Like, why are you still have this Chromebook? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it would take a video and frame by frame draw for each second. So like one thing was like 160 something frames. Wow. And literally use his finger to draw each one. I'm like, yo, this is, we need to do something with you with this because you care a lot about this. So I'm trying to get him. I tried to find digital art um, camp. I couldn't. The only thing I would find would say something for like middle school and up. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, he's got something. I just got to find out how to help support him with that. That's a very creative mind for sure. Wow. 160. That's, and it's, that's focused. Right? That's a focused mind. <laughs> Very and, Paul, and you're drawing and outlining adding to each one i'm like that was 160 like are you and you're not getting paid for this like this is just something that you're interested in doing that's a lot of time and man hours yeah. so yeah well samantha thank you for stepping into dave's head when we come back we'll do our headers hang-ups right after this hey headers yeah, I didn't coin the phrase, I know. During my podcast, you'll notice that between segments, you hear commercials. Kind of like this one. The commercials are either paid sponsorships or promotional for people who support my podcast. Well, I like to provide that same opportunity to all my headers. If you like and support, well, technically, you don't have to like it, I guess. But I mean, it's kind of weird and somewhat creepy if you don't like my podcast, but you're still faithfully listening to it. Anyway, if you at least listen to my podcast i like to offer you the opportunity to advertise on it. Now, before you say it, there's no cost. Hashtag free. If you have a charity or community event or anything going on where you're paying it forward, shoot me an email with a summary and the key info and I'll do all the rest for you. Or, you know what? Get creative and do a 30 second ad yourself and send it to me. Either way, send it to davesheadpod at gmail.com. Let's spread the news about great things together. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. Welcome back. I want to thank Samantha Fletcher for stepping into Dave's head and really having a great conversation around DEI, which we've talked about a lot in Dave's head, education, tech ed, and so much more. Check her out if you want more information about her and her podcast, Daily Border Crossings. With season two of Dave's head, I introduce Headers Hangups, an opportunity for you to ask questions or topics and I'll answer them during the episode. I usually pick one or two, depending on the length, the depth, and how not crazy they are. Because some of y'all got some questions. It's kind of weird. I picked two for this episode, and here's the first one. Would you rather cook a romantic dinner for your wife, girlfriend, or eat a romantic dinner cooked by your wife, girlfriend? So, just feel like I need to point out that I don't have either. But... My answer is really easy. And I feel like this is kind of cheating because either the person that asked this question is setting this kind of up for me or they don't listen to the show. But if they submitted a question, thank you anyway. I appreciate you. The easy answer is I'd rather cook the romantic dinner for my future wife, girlfriend, where I actually be girlfriend than wife. Um, I prefer to give. I prefer to cook. I love cooking. It's a passion, number one. But I also 
looking at my love languages, and I've talked about this on the show where I did the love languages in order, my least important are gifts. The least important is because I prefer to give. And it's not to say I don't appreciate gifts. I absolutely appreciate gifts. They're ranked in order. They're not saying the fifth one has no importance at all. I prefer to give. I prefer to cook in this situation because the options are to cook for me or I cook for you or really us. But And especially if it's a romantic dinner. I've had situations where I've cooked a romantic dinner for people in the past because I'm a Capricorn, because I'm Dave, I put together a whole menu, I overthink it, I, I time everything out, you know, this could be ready, so this could be hot, and this could be coming next, and do this and do that. It's a event to me, because I'm Dave, and I overthink, and I overdo things. But the absolute answer would be, yes, I would prefer in this situation that I'm the one cooking the romantic dinner for us, as opposed to my girlfriend, wife, significant other, being the one that cooks our romantic dinner. The second question is this. Now that football is back, who do you have winning the college championship and the Super Bowl? So this this will be a really, really short answer. Um, number one, college would be Alabama. Roll Tide. I think it's obvious who my answer would be for this. Um, again, I feel like this is kind of like setup questions, but I did choose them. So I guess I kind of set myself up too. Um, I think to me, the only threats to Alabama winning the championship may be a Georgia um, because their defense is so great. I really feel no threat at all from Notre Dame. Um, I really don't feel a threat after Saturday from Clemson, but Alabama to me is the clear cut favorite right now. And it's not just because they're my team. It's because I know football a little bit. And they, they, you know, they're going to play some Sisters of the Poor school this weekend. And so there'll, there'll be nothing that changes anybody's mind unless somehow they lose to them, which that won't happen. But unless, you know, until the SEC schedule gets really ramped up in the next couple of weeks and we start seeing maybe that matchup against Georgia, we see the, the Iron Bowl game, the Auburn game, you know, just the, just the hype of it. Even if Auburn's not that good, it's just the hype of that game. And we see some of the SEC matchups that, Alabama plays and how they play them because let's be real. The SEC is the creme de la creme of all college conferences. So getting through that conference schedule means you, you're a pretty damn good team. So unless something drastically changes, it's going to be Alabama. As for the NFL, it's much trickier. I will say something that probably will be a little controversial. My first thought in my head is Kansas City. Just because Big Red, Andy Reid, I have much love and respect for as a former Philadelphia Eagles coach. But to me, he has the MVP of the league in Patrick Mahomes. He has one of the ultimate weapons in uh, Tyreek Hill. And you have Big Red as a coach who, one thing I can say about him, he learns his lessons. When he loses, he learns his lessons. And so I think they come back stronger and better. I think they actually wind up repeating the Super Bowl. I actually see Tampa Bay and Kansas City playing again, this time not in Tampa Bay. But I will say this dark horse that crept into my mind as I was thinking about the answer to this question right now. Don't sleep on the Cleveland Browns. And I know there are people out there somewhere laughing their ass off right now. Like, did he just say Cleveland Browns? Yeah. Don't sleep on the Cleveland Browns. 
they're kind of year two, three into this whole rebuilding and, and building up their brand and building up the, the, the play quality on the field. Solid quarterback, great weapons, nice defense, pretty good coach. Do not sleep on the Cleveland Browns and AFC. And I'll say, don't sleep on San Francisco in the NFC. Now, the easy choice for honorable mention, if you will, would have been Green Bay because they have A-Rod and I appreciate love A-Rod. But don't sleep on San Fran. They made a lot of changes this offseason. So don't sleep on them. So I'll say Kansas City, Tampa Bay will be the Super Bowl and I think Kansas City will win. I will say don't sleep on the Cleveland Browns and AFC. Don't sleep on the San Francisco 49ers in the NFC. If you have a hangers, if you have a headers hang up, I should say, feel free to submit it on any of my social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, shoot me an email at daveshead.podcast at gmail.com. And we'll try to get it on. Coming up, we'll have our grin for this episode right after this. Hey good people, you may have noticed some cool music playing for this show. That music was provided by DJ Ms. Deluxe. Deluxe represents as one of the top female DJs in Philly. Since 92, she's been spinning in clubs, on the radio, and touring around the country. And now is doing big things as a producer and local promoter under the main event Philly. Check her out on Instagram at DJ Ms. Deluxe. That's D-J-M-Z-D-E-L-U-X-X. And for promotions at the main event Philly. All one word. That's DJ Ms. Deluxe. Doing it since the golden era music. The 90s, as I like to call it. Thank you for your support and contribution to Dave's Head. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. My absolute favorite segment of my podcast is my grin, which stands for great reason to be in love with now. Football season is here, which we've talked about already during this episode. We talked about last episode because, you know, I love football across the world. There are a lot of people excited for it, but you may not be one of them. There's a website called verilymagazine.com. Verilymag.com is the actual website. Back in 2016, they published an article entitled How to Get Through Football Season When You Don't Care, But Your Significant Other Does. Got football fatigue? My grin for this episode is making the best of football season when you don't necessarily like, enjoy, or into football. So they actually talk about five things on their website five tips to get you through and I'm speaking about this from a relationship perspective because I'm passionate about football but the person who captures my heart next may not like football at all there are women out there who don't like football at all like don't even want to watch it don't understand it don't care about it none of that stuff but your partner does and just like there are women out there who love to do something that men could give two shits about but there's there's in a relationship There's tug and pull, right? There's give and take. There's compromise. You know, I played football for the last 20-something years. Every girlfriend, fiance, wife that came in my life didn't like football like that. 
But some of them came to my games. Some of them watched me play. There are things that I really could care nothing about, like fashion, for instance. Not that I don't care about it. I like to look good. Believe that. But an ex of mine was a fashion designer. Had no idea what the hell was going on. I'm like, how did that turn into a shirt? I have no idea. But in fashion shows aren't my thing. It's just, I'm starving. Can we go eat already? But I supported her in her business and her initiative. She needed things at a house at workspace. I created a workspace for her. But that's the kind of, the kind of things that you do in a relationship. You kind of compromise. You show support. You engage in things that you may not necessarily have any idea about or have any interest in. And so they talk about five tips if you're, and we'll say for my case, if you're someone I'm involved with, girlfriend, fiance, wife, and has no love for football. The first one they talk about is try to get into the spirit. Now, I'm not going to quote directly from the, the website. I'm going to take their five bullet points and I'm going to talk about it myself. This one's the difficult one for me because it's very hard for you to get into the spirit if you don't know what you're watching, don't care about what you're watching. But there are different ways for you to get into the spirit. And I actually said I wasn't going to quote anything, but something did just pop into my head. One thing to talk about is you get dressed up for St. Patty's Day. You're not Irish, right? So you can dress up. You can decorate the house. You can face paint. You can do all different types of things to get into the spirit. Even though you're not into football, even though you may not even know what you're watching, you can make it an enjoyable thing for you so that it's a three, four hours, or maybe a whole day, depending on how your man operates. But it's a couple hours of enjoyment, not necessarily football again all day. You don't have that type of thing. So engage and make it fun for you. If you like doing hair, do some cool hair for the games. Do some cool nails. You know, make it enjoyable in the way that you like to do things. The second thing to talk about is order or make your favorite sports food. Now, this one seems pretty easy to me because we all do and participate in different things that we enjoy that not really are healthy ish for us. Right. Tailgating. You don't really have the best high quality vegan food sitting out there when you're tailgating. You're doing wings and burgers and steaks and chicken and all types of stuff. You're drinking all types of beer, liquor, all types of stuff. But if you're not into football, you can at least have some of your favorite stuff. And I will say this. If you're tailgating with your husband, but you're not really into football, do not be ashamed to get some food that you know you like just to make yourself happy. And he should understand that. If you want some sushi at 11 o'clock on a Sunday while you're tailgating for that 1 o'clock game, bring your ass some fresh sushi. While everybody's eating their wings and burgers and steaks and chicken, you be sitting there dipping your wasabi sauce on your sushi. So make the food experience yours. If you're not, you don't sit there eat some greasy cheeseburgers and steaks and cheesesteaks and all types of stuff, bring the food you want to bring. If you sit there eating celery sticks, that's just what you're doing. As long as you're enjoying the experience, which kind of ties into the first one. As long as you're enjoying the experience, that's all that matters. Now, the third one seems kind of fun to me, right? So try to find some personal attachment to the team. Now, I'm putting myself in a woman's shoes right now. So, again, my woman does not like football at all. So how can I give her some personal attachment to the team? 
it seems pretty easy, right? Find one of the hot guys on the team, point him out to her. Oh, he's cute. I like the way his jersey hangs on him or whatever, right? Get her engaged, fellas, in some of the, the attractive guys on your team. At least if you know her style. Like if you're suggesting this one guy who has, he may be cute to the world, but not to her, that's not going to help you. So I would hope you're in tune to what type of man she's attracted to. Get her his jersey number so she can sit there in his jersey and gawk at him. And even it's it's playful, right? You don't expect them to go to like hotel room like a groupie, but or you don't expect her to do that. But get her that jersey. Make a little fun thing out of it. Give her some personal attachment to the team. Maybe even when you go to a game, you can point him out. Get his signed autograph for the jersey. Make it a way for her to enjoy this few hours every week while you're watching football. So another good one they had on the website was double or triple dated up. So ladies, you're, you don't like football. You're not into football. Your husband's sitting there. He's rah-rah and cheering, drinking beer, smashing burgers or eating burgers, smashing beer, whatever. He's having a great time every Sunday. It sucks to you. But you know your girlfriend who also doesn't like football and another girlfriend who also doesn't like football both have husbands that do. Bring them on over. That way, while the fellows are having their football, you ladies can talk about whatever non-football stuff you want to talk about and have a great old time. Double, triple, quadruple, octuple, whatever. It up. Make a little event every Sunday. A little time for you to get together with your friends, have a good time, and the fellows can do what they want to do. Double it. Triple it. Whatever. Octuple it. There you go. And the last one I actually think is pretty cool because it's something I think that shouldn't even be on this list because I think it should be just naturally part of reciprocation. But ask him to join for some of your hobbies too. I would think that's kind of goes without saying. If fellas, if we're going to make her suffer through some football when she doesn't like football, doesn't even care about football, we should be able to do some things that she wants to do as well, whether we know or care about or like them either. You know, if she likes to go to ballet and not concerts and not movies, but she likes to go to ballet, we can go sit through ballet. We can take the same time to reciprocate the energy and, and love that she's shown us watching football, which may seem minuscule, but it meant something to us that she's making sure the food's good, having some friends over, you know, wearing the jersey, getting into it, even though she doesn't care about it. We can get dressed, go to a ballet, have some dinner and all that stuff. If that's what she's into. So check out the article on verilymag.com. In their little search thing in the top right of the home screen, search for football season. And it'll be the first result on this article. Or the first result will be this article, I should say. The next to last thing I want to talk about is our monthly giveaway contest. This month, September, our sponsor is Pegasus Financial Planning. You might remember... Ty McGillberry has been on this podcast twice each season so far, and his company is the sponsor for this month. The winner will receive a free, free, free 60-minute consultation. So get your entries in. You can enter every single day for the opportunity to get a free 60-minute financial consultation. Hello, finance, 
consultation free enter the contest every single day contest is open until september 20th a little less than two weeks from this episode drops go enter every single day lastly i want to thank samantha fletcher for stepping into dave's head check out our podcast daily border crossings and check out our website at www.samanthafletcher.com. So contingency plans, tech and ed tech, Pegasus Financial Planning, and Samantha Fletcher, all great reasons to be in love with now. For now, that's what's in Dave's head. Until next time, stay happy and healthy. Like I always say, enjoy life, because life should be fun. Thank you for listening and take care.